0: and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light
1: of his glory and grace welcome everybody to another episode of trans snoopy presents the bible i have a very special guest with me today Trip Fuller is here to discuss First Thessalonians five with me. Welcome, Trip.
2: I am pumped to be here, and uh, hopefully, I won't disappoint you so bad that you tell some of our mutual friends like, <laughs> why the hell did you tell why did you, why did you tell me about Trip? What is this about?
1: <laughs> I'm just so glad that I was able to get you on, and uh, you know, I've been a listener of your podcast for a while, and um, I think what you do is is great work uh homebrewed christianity is is an excellent show for anyone that hasn't checked it out yet and it's um there's a long backlog of episodes for you to check out on all kinds of different topics (laughs) and um and trip is uh at the risk of sounding uh a little overly dramatic trip is one of the originators i think of of the sort of stuff that that i'm doing and and what dan is doing now as well Uh, dan coke is doing now as well so i'm really really excited to have you on
2: Oh, glad to be here. And, and I actually, I think your format's really cool. Thank you. And, and there's almost no way I could do it. <laughs> like the, the ability to like go through people from all sorts of different backgrounds, like both faith, relationship to the scriptures, then go all over the different, uh, different texts. Like I'm, I'm not good at, uh, you know when I lead small groups and that kind of thing. When I mean, I was a minister for until I started, you know, teaching full time at a university. I work at the University of Edinburgh now, but um, I, I was like the Bible study leader that people came to for the nerd show, not because I facilitated conversation and listening well. <laughs> um, and 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 I, I whenever I will listen to you going, I'm like, oh no, no. Really good at this. Really good at this.
1: <laughs> Thank you. I mean, it's it's. Uh, this was an unlikely show from the very beginning, um, and obviously, I think uh, in the in the early days, I was stumbling a lot because I I was still learning a lot, and I still am. I mean, I still learn every episode. I learn something new about the Bible. Um, or just about faith and practice in general, and um, and early on, I think the title of the show carried me into uh, into a position where people actually wanted to listen. But um, I've had so many wonderful guests on and so many interesting people that um, it's been a real blessing to me. So, uh,
2: before- so, so how do you how do you explain the show to people that have no idea? So right, like when when uh, homebrewed listeners, my podcast Homebrew Christian, when they listen to it. And if I like mention, hey, I was on Trans Regrets Snoopy. You should check it out. What's <laughs> like? What's your elevator pitch? Because while like like logo name and everything definitely inspires an initial click. Uh, if you're trying to sell it without just that, what's the what? What's your like elevator pitch style? I think that how you pitch it
1: or or how you summarize it depends kind of on who you're talking to about the show. Um, Because I think it has an appeal for a broad group of types of Christians. And Mm -hmm. I think in general, it's a Bible podcast hosted by someone who's not a biblical scholar. Uh, Primarily, I'm attempting to reach people from all different walks of life, all different faith backgrounds, I want to engage with people about Scripture, regardless of whether or not they fit into the same uh, religious box that I do. Um, I've had folks from uh, atheist, agnostic backgrounds, uh, folks with Jewish backgrounds, Christians and Catholics, and uh, ultimately All of those conversations have been incredibly uh, valuable, not just for me personally, but for a lot of people who have listened and have found either uh, information that's new and useful for them or um, spiritual uh, advice or spiritual uh, realizations that have been edifying for them, and uh, in some cases... We stumble upon uh, new ideas that uh, neither I nor the guests have have thought about before, and and have had some really fun and profound moments of discussion.
2: Well, and and, and I bet you've learned a lot. While uh, yeah, I mean, it's
1: going through this absolutely, and and I mean, I, I think that between this show and the weekly Bible study that I do with my my Patreon group at our, on our Discord, um, I've picked up so much in the last few months, especially that um while i'm again far from somebody that that should uh, claim to to know a lot i i'm slowly getting to a point where i feel like i can actually hear a hear a passage and go oh this reminds me of this passage in this other uh in this other letter or um or this bit of of, of the gospel you know it's um it's really yeah. cool it's exciting and and obviously the the bible is so immense it's so vast and it's so it's so flexible uh it's been translated in so many different ways the message Mm -hmm. um has been um sort of transmuted into different uh into different sort of sects of christian faith it's been moved around so much that uh you can get a message from one translation from one faith tradition and get a completely different message from from another translation and another faith tradition and that that still intrigues me to this day too
2: oh yeah it's very true
1: um I think uh I think before we go into the 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 passage here because this is an interesting passage it's kind of a thorny one it's um it's something that uh you've actually engaged with in in uh in preaching is what you told me. Um before we dive into that why don't you tell folks a little bit about yourself and how faith plays a part in your life?
2: Yeah, so I was a I was born in rural North Carolina. I was a Baptist preacher's kid. Uh, and lived in rural North Carolina um until fifth grade in the states uh we moved into the uh capital city of Raleigh, North Carolina to church plant and um so I went from what you'd expect we were edgy for rural Baptist you know we had uh female deacons uh, <laughs> and then, wow um yeah i and and religious diversity was the kind of Baptist you were. So th- then we moved to Raleigh, um, which because of Research Triangle Park, like Duke, NC State, UNC and stuff is a, a a much more, a much different culture. And we church planted there. And we were the the first church in town that had like a rock band. We planted it in a movie theater. Um, I went to Art Magnet School. So I was in theater from sixth grade on uh, for two periods, like two of your periods a day was theater. Um, and there... I interacted with a completely different world. And so I think a lot of the initial kind of shocks of finding a bigger world than you first knew and all that happened young enough that uh, my my faith journey, yes, yes, it's grown and changed and things. But I can see like threads of continuity running through it or in some sense, like I'll say that uh, like, there are versions of me. Like if you ask me what I believed at any particular time, I'm like, that's wrong and dumb trip. <laughs> right. But also throughout the whole thing, I can recognize that I've all I've had like an ongoing kind of entanglement with the divine that's transformed my life and sent it on all sorts of directions. So um, like I mean, I went to divinity school, did my PhD in philosophy of religion, um, uh, and was in LA for almost 10 years, uh, where, where I did my PhD and then stayed work, worked at a really large UCC church, which is for those who don't know, like the probably the most progressive Protestant denomination in the States, like the first to do all the big moves of inclusion for like ordaining individuals from all the different identity groups to advocating for, um, uh, like, uh like, Ecological issues, all the way back to the '80s, to uh, taking stands on uh, racism and stuff before, is like, like they were the ones that they felt like they're being themselves when they stake the most progressive positions on ethical things. Uh, so, in that context, when I moved there, because I grew up Baptist, I uh, like we were edgy for Baptist. That's 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 different. Um, so when I'm when I end up working at a UCC church in Los Angeles. Uh, that, again, was this whole another expansion into another world. Um, Christianity is not culture dominant. I ended up learning what it's like to be a minister that is actually introducing people to the faith for the first time because they met you at a protest or uh, part of a community group that you're a part of or all these kinds of things that they end up encountering the, the faith and it's their first time. Uh, and their religious spiritual background is Los Angeles, which is like – Probably like among the least institutionally religious places, but definitely one of the most spiritual ones. And um, it's it, so like that culture shock was its own shift. And, and and so like I could see threads working through it. The same happened um, almost, you know, two and a half years ago when we moved to Scotland. It's a completely different place uh, here. I'm on faculty in religion and science. Um, my big research stuff currently is on consciousness and... Um, a project called "God in the Book of Nature" is like the giant grant I'm a part of. But mm. um, my it's on panpsychism and accounts of conscious scientific accounts of consciousness and philosophy of mind and that kind of stuff and religion. So, uh, and in classes I teach here, like at at the school, are um, like you know, philosophy, religion, theology type things that are engaging science. I teach the philosophy of religion class for multiple departments um, and. Uh, next semester, I'm doing one on like how religion's been shaped by the biological and brain sciences, uh, our understanding of religion. So like those are like research interests and such. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a whole book series I wrote um, and edited called The Homebrewed Christianity Guides. They're like to God, Jesus, spirit, church history, that kind of thing. Um, and then I have a, my Last year, or sometime since we've been locked down, (laughs) I had a book come out that's an academic book called Divine Self-Investment, and I made a movie called The Road to Edmund. It's a buddy road trip uh, comedy with progressive spiritual themes about a youth minister that gets uh, told to take two weeks off to pray about his job after he's welcoming to someone that comes out, Um, and then it's like planes, trains, and automobiles with inappropriate religious jokes. Uh, it's very <laughs> mediocre, but it's available for free on Amazon Prime. Uh the second half is better than the first half because that was the second week any of us had ever made a movie. Uh the film was uh was rejected from all the religious film festivals and played in another number of LGBTQ film festivals. Uh so which which was, you know, kind of the goal, but uh, not, I mean, I wasn't trying to get rejected, but it does help your publicity yeah. if right wingers are like, "This film is made by Satan." <laughs> um, one person, like this like you know homeschooling legendary blogger, I didn't know who the hell she was, but it definitely sent trolls, uh, said that the the movie is trying to swindle the viewer into believing that God genuinely love and cares about everyone. What? <laughs> yeah, I was like, "Wow, well, I guess I succeeded." <laughs> anyway, the, so the, the I, I say all that like I've I've had experiences that that put me in context, and then somehow I would if you look back, I don't see this big disjunctive like, "Oh, this is when I completely deconstructed everything," or you know those type of things. I see, I, I see progress, transformation, evolution, and stuff, but throughout the whole thing, um my encounter and experience of the divine has been much more stable than a lot of my peers. And I think it's because I've had a positive relationship with the church. Mm. Like I learned about protesting things at the church. Um, Like uh, my dad uh, started this um, nonprofit thing. He called the Baptist AIDS Partnership in North Carolina in the 90s for people with HIV AIDS and their caretakers who were getting ostracized by everyone in culture then in the South uh and and because I was like a kid and would go to sing music, that's where I met uh the the first transgendered people I'd ever met. And we sang worship songs and ate meals and stuff. And so, like, once all these issues became something in my mind, I'm like, obviously, I know what the answer is because I had these experiences. <laughs> and, and so so many other people in my generation, uh a lot of the more social justice related issues. Um, or the big intellectual challenge things were hangups For me, the justice ones are like, I learned more about investing in the material reality of our neighbors and our enemies from the church. And the church, my my dad and my mom would hand me books if I asked questions about God and be like, read it, then we'll talk about it because we aren't going to think for you. (laughs) And so the the things that normally trigger people to doubt and struggle in really deep ways – where the church and the community of faith wasn't an enemy for it, um, and so that would I guess be the most unique part. Uh, if you are thinking about my spiritual life and stuff up to now, and um. I think um,
1: it, it's it's helpful to hear stories like this because um, not only is that like a very impressive pedigree of of, of things relating to faith that you, that you've accomplished in in um, in so many different um, sort of areas of media and and of life. But uh, for folks that are uh, uncertain about their faith, for folks that maybe grew up in a more conservative background or uh, maybe weren't religious at all early on in their lives and are trying to approach faith now, uh, it's important to hear that there is no single path towards like an enlightened real version of Christianity. I, I think that uh, that sort of notion uh, while it is comforting, I think for some people to think, "Well, we have it right, and everybody has it wrong." Uh, there's no, there's, there's really no reason why we, as humans at all, should think that we are certain of how we should be worshiping, or how we should be believing, or what we should be believing. And there's too much evidence to the contrary with respect to. Uh, Issues of of doctrine and issues of a biblical uh, inerrancy and and issues of um, of churches in in their own way faltering and failing the people that that are a part of them that we need to as individuals not necessarily separate ourselves from uh, faith traditions or or institutional. Uh, religions but rather allow ourselves to fit in to what we feel is the place for us uh, there are going to be churches that are more accepting of you as a person if you have uh, if you're part of a sexual or gender minority um, there are going to be churches who might not be as openly welcoming but might fit your, Style of praise of worship that that might fit better for you in other regards and and there's no there's no more reason that you should feel that you need to go to one place than another place um, it's not that there is no it's not that there is no law it's that the law is so much more complicated than the bible <laughs> than the Bible is um, interpreted by most I think most major denominations of Christianity mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um, well, thank you for sharing all that. Um, it's, uh, h- how did you get into Christian podcasting? What made you want to start the Homebrewed Christianity podcast? Oh.
2: Well, um, so I was in divinity school and my best friend Chad and I had started a theology pub group and we had, uh, at Foothills Brewing Company in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. And, um, and, and I had started one at the church I was working I was working at first Christian Church in Winston which is disciples of Christ it's kind of like the kissing cousins of the UCC another <laughs> more progressive like Protestant denomination uh mainline Protestant one um and we decided like you know we'd use books well here's what happens when you run a book group uh most people don't read it And then if you were like one of the people that read it, you spend most of the time explaining the book so that then people could have thoughts about it to discuss. Very frustrating if it's at a brewery and you thought you were doing a book group at a brewery so you'd actually get to drink, which you can't do if you're talking, explaining the book the whole time. So I had, this This is how, this is what the tech world was in 2007 when we started the group before the podcast. I would record phone interviews with guests, then put them on rewritable CDs and give them to the group for the next wow. month. And my buddy Chad knew I was doing this and he's like, Man, I've heard have you not heard about podcasting? And I'm like, No, I take Heidegger's critique of technology seriously. <laughs> I only got even got on Facebook and started using it because when I was a campus minister at UNC Greensboro, um, like about that time students weren't coming to things and said they forgot because you send me a Facebook invite. And I'm like, no, I think it's of the devil. I feel better <laughs> about that judgment now. But the uh, – um, so he explains to me podcasts. We decide, oh, this is a great idea. Let's let's set one up, start it. We used a few of the interviews I had done before, but they weren't like quality enough. Like once you compress it back in the day uh, to the, the kind of compression necessary to put a podcast on. Uh, so – then we started recording some intentionally, and we were having ourselves fun. And the whole idea for homebrewed Christianity was most people, when they say Christianity, think, like, what comes to their mind is, like, the equivalent in the beer world of Miller Light <laughs> or Pabst Blue Ribbon. Yeah. Like, Pabst Blue Ribbon won a Blue Ribbon a long-ass time ago. Oh, are we allowed to curse? Yes. Please. <laughs> okay. Okay, I just I I, you know, everyone should know it's like eleven o'clock for trips. So if this is early in the morning, I'm sorry, I don't sound like this at eleven a.m. Anyway, the it, it, it past blue ribbon. It it's uh, the the only way past blue ribbon fills you with the spirit is if you drink a large volume of it, suspended upside down in <laughs> front of a historic institution with with Greek heritage, namely a fraternity. It's a yeah. joke, it's, but but that's also like what shitty christianity's like. And then people are like, "Do you like beer?" And if you say yes, they think you like drinking Paps blue ribbon. And if they if you say, "Are you a Christian?" and you're like, "Yes," they look at you and go, "Oh no. He's one of those." Right? And so the this is like this, at this time was the uh, like initial kickoff of the craft beer scene in North Carolina. The homebrew club I'd been in went from like 5 members to 50. You know, in a few in, in just a few years. And um and I as an academic and someone that grew up with them and had books around and read them and talked to them, my whole goal was, uh, yeah, I have my opinions, but there's like a billion good ones. Why are we all running around pretending that Paps Blue Ribbon tastes good and that's what Christianity's like? So what if I interview like best scholars for, like theologians, philosophers, biblical scholars, scientists, or whatever that are around those big ideas and questions humans ask forever, and then give it to you and you brew your own faith, like homebrewing. Homebrewers can have high-quality beer that like matches the water chemistry in the area using the different local ingredients, and it tastes wonderful and zesty and delicious, and you would never choose Miller Light over that unless you were mowing in the summer. And so the, the that was the metaphor, is homebrewing um, and because Chad and I learned to homebrew together. So it, it, it kicks off for that purpose. Uh, and like a few years after we'd started it, cause like no one was doing it then I used to have to, I had a whole page on the website explaining to people how to subscribe to the podcast. Cause they're like, well, what's a podcast? You're like, well, it's like internet radio, but online and you can listen whenever you want and pause it. And they're like, and so it's like NPR? No, no, it's not like in, you know, so that that's what it was like early on. And, and once you could actually start getting data, you know, and Chad's like, dude, 800 people listen to all of our episodes. I'm like, what the, you know, I'm like, this is nuts. They, and, and here's how I heard it as a minister, 800 people choosing to listen to you. How big a church do you have to have? in order for 800 people to choose to listen to your sermon they're probably there for the coffee their friends so they can be away from their kids and quiet for the music for the view anything the number of people at any church I've been at and pre- and I'm I'm a decent preacher I'm like I bet I'm like b plus for most people and in the right circumstances I can rock it but even then like the biggest church I worked at in Los Angeles the 800 members is what we Thought that technically were there. And on Sundays between the two services, there's like around 550 or so. I bet 80 of them gave a shit what any of us that were preaching said. Like, that they actually paid paid attention. They maybe checked in and out. Now, this is 800 people that chose to download it knowing it's going to be an hour and a half or so. And then listen, in my head, I thought, I have become a mega church preacher for liberal Protestants on the internet. That's what went through my head. So this is the greatest <laughs> thing ever. And before no one else was doing it then. So if I emailed famous scholars and I'm like 800 people will hear this. They're like, "That's possible?" So by the time other people were doing it and things, I'd had all these big names on. So when I invite people, they're like, "Oh, like all my peers that or cool have been on. Like, this is amazing. And so because I did it so long, I I feel like uh, the the inertia made for two things. One, they're like, he must be good. I, he's done it for a long time. The other is I spent so much time doing it. If I quit, I don't even know what I would do with the 20 hours a week I spend podcasting. <laughs> I think that's... And, not-
1: uh, sorry, my dog is freaking out right now. I'm going to go lock him away right. and then we'll we'll continue this because I wanted to talk about that. Um, not just the data comment that you made, but this like how it's kind of like a snowball because it seems to me that that's like the, the power of podcasting is just continuing through and, and powering through even those moments where it's like, oh, this episode didn't do as well as I wanted it to. Um, anyway, <laughs> so, sorry, just one, one second. No problem. So getting back to the conversation about podcasting. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, it can be really, really exciting when you launch a show to start to see um, listens, numbers of listens, uh, grow. Uh, and then it can be equally as uh, disappointing and frustrating when you start to see like, oh, I must not be captivating people in the same way or that one just didn't perform in the way that I wanted to. And it's kind of a vain pursuit in some ways because it's like, ultimately, if anyone listens and and any, I've always said this about this show, if anyone listens and then in some way finds... Their way to a Bible and wants to read more scripture. That to me is a win. It could be one person. It could be eight hundred people. It could be fifteen hundred people. Like to yeah. ultimately, like if you've made an impact in anyone's life in in um, in edifying their faith or encouraging them to read scripture, that is an absolute positive. That that's like a wonderful thing that you've done. But it can be, I think, a little frustrating. I'm sure it was for you when people didn't even know how to download podcasts or subscribe to podcasts to be like, okay, it's not that complicated. I know it's new technology, but um, – This is but, yeah. why I put it on rewritable CDs. <laughs> if only we could just mail out the podcast on CDs, <laughs> it, would be, it would all work out fine.
2: Yeah. Yeah, that's that- – the, I, I imagine that there's there have been a few people that would wish I gave them that option
1: um, <laughs> who was uh who's been your favorite guest can you say a favorite guest of yours I mean you've had so many so oh. it's probably an unfair question but
2: well I mean like there there's like coolest like my personal favorite episodes than like my favorite friends of the podcast that come on regularly kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Like homebrew, I always joke about, we proselytize for JC and that means Jesus Christ, obviously, but, uh, it, also John Cobb, Jack Caputo, just Catherine Keller and uh, <laughs> James Cohn. Okay. Um, so the, uh, it, it jokes about the JC, but all those individuals, well, not James Cohn. We've done, I'm about to start the second reading group on James Cohn, the father of black Liberation theology in America, but uh, the others come on pretty regularly. Uh, John Cobb's like process theologian, just Catherine Keller, because she said she wanted to be a JC. So <laughs> just Catherine, anyway. Um, Jack Caputo is like a uh, Jacques Derrida, um, a major interpreter, especially bringing his work in engagement in philosophy of religion. Uh, big kind of postmodern theorist about religion. Anyway, huh. so, like those have been important. Like my favorite, like, oh, this is cool. I got to talk to this person if you're not a super nerd, where like Morgan Freeman, uh, Ewan McGregor, uh like like you know, where you're like, oh, that was cool. <laughs> um Jurgen Moltmann might be like the coolest of like for theologians. Okay. They find, oh, that was cool you got to talk to him. Uh he's probably the most influential post-World War II German theologian. Second half of the 20th century, I think he's the most assigned theologian in seminaries worldwide. So um his book, The Crucified God, is one of the best books of all time. It and and then there are like people that are friends of the podcast and stuff that people really like. Like like Dan and I have done episodes together recently or like um, Dustin from thrice and I'll do them or Sarah Lane Ritchie. Like people are my friends. Those are their own vibe Mm -hmm. um, because it's less interviewee and more friends that happen to be nerds talking. (laughs) Um, That's its own, its own tactic. Sure. Sure.
1: I think that's really cool. I, I, um, uh, should we, should we just get into the scripture?
2: I'm I'm cool going wherever you want. Okay, um, but you know, people should you, people should know, you know, that you suggested First Thessalonians. <laughs> Usually, I let my guests
1: pick the passage if they care. You know, if they if they have a preference, then you know they pick it. As long as it's not something I've done like more than once or or twice, and it's not just going to like be uh, beating a point into the yeah. ground. Um, I think there's been a lot of Paul lately on the show. I don't, I don't know. Early on in the show, uh, early episodes, I was a a Paul critic. I was vocally, uh, vocally questioning the, the veracity of Paul's claims because, well... He was a Pharisee. How could someone who was a Pharisee possibly uh, become one of the the the, the pro- become the prominent writer in the New Testament? Um, but the more I read Paul, the more I like Paul. Uh, the more it all makes sense to me. the more um, the <laughs> Christological all of his teachings are right. The the more true it is to to the gospel. So, uh, you know, like I said early on. Uh I, since early on, I've been learning every episode and and my opinions have changed drastically. Sometimes I'll listen to the old episodes and be like, oh, don't say that. You don't know what you're talking about.
2: Well, I, I think that my favorite are when people at a church I worked at send me like, you know, I'm very disappointed in you emails from something I said like seven years earlier. And I don't even remember <laughs> saying it. And. And I'm like, oh, did I say that? All right. Well, I like, I got I've had at least three public opinions on that topic. So <laughs> that's,
1: that's not the one I carry anymore. You can you can just put that one away.
2: <laughs> <laughs> You're like, I'm good. I'm good. That's fine. So in
1: first Thessalonians five, and I don't really honestly, I don't really know why I picked this. I think it's just a passage that's been um, that stuck out to me in some way or another, and it's something that didn't seem like an obvious choice. I mean, we are in Advent now, and and it is we're nearing the the uh, the birth of Jesus, which is obviously uh, yeah. the the major um, the major holiday or one of the two major holidays in the Christian calendar. But um, I think I wanted to speak with with someone who has the the background that you do. I wanted to speak with something that was more speak about something that was more. Difficult. Something that had a little more to chew on and something that maybe you've heard people take issue with in the past. Well,
2: I think you succeeded.
1: (laughs) Now, you said that you preached on this topic for a reason when you did. What was that reason?
2: Oh, so in the summer, in mainline, so mainline Protestants, for those that don't know, like you have on and off seasons, just like a pool. When the pool in your neighborhood opens up, at Memorial Day, you know, like the end of the school year. That begins the off-season of mainline Protestant church attendance. Now our regulars are like, I came once or twice in the month. And then if you're the once or twice in a month, you're like, I'll come once until <laughs> Labor Day when the pool closes uh, and their vacations are over and all, and school starts back. So in the summer, like, you come up with all sorts of things to do when preaching. That might either entertain you or for the elect who keep coming consistently that they're gonna show up for, or maybe some people watching on the internet. Who knows? And <laughs> so we did a series that was where congregants submitted Bible texts that freak them out, make them uncomfortable, squirmy, squirmy <laughs> scriptures, you know? And uh and there were so many that specifically picked things in first Thessalonians <laughs> that we spent quite a bit of time in it. Um, and so like when you said, it, I was like, Oh, uh, did he, did he get his Patreon members to vote? <laughs> like
1: <laughs> it's uh it wasn't even that. No, it was, I, okay. I swear it was, um, it was really. And honestly, it's funny because that so many people picked multiple things out of first Thessalonians for you because the, the, the letter as a whole is kind of generally praising the church in Thessalonica, right? The, the, mm-hmm. the, the letter as a whole is saying, like, you guys don't need any advice on this because you already get it. You're already doing the right thing here. Now, it's a bunch of – there's some warnings there. There's some – you know, the, the sort of gentle advice that Paul and Timothy give regularly. But it's not uh, as pointed as things like Romans – uh, where there is a direct critique of what's going on and what exactly should not be being done that's being done right now, um, I don't see that in in First Thessalonians.
2: Well, there, there are two things, two reasons I think that uh, initiated the questions. One is Paulus Verdes Estates, the part of Los Angeles I worked in. The other really big church on the hill um, is the church that Hal Lindsey, the guy that. Wrote late great planet Earth, started. Oh, okay. (laughs) Like, like you know the the before there was left behind. There was late late great planet Earth, the premillennial dispensationalist fictional book. And so, if you are on that hill, especially those that have been there a while, like I think that animated like no one ever talks about, you know, thief in the night here, and also that part of Southern California is like the birth of the Jesus movement. Mm. So you get like uh, the Jesus people movement, socialist vibes, hippie Jesus vibe, all kinds of cool stuff. But also I wish we'd all been ready vibes, right? So <laughs> they there are some parts of it great. Other parts you're like, watch out. Um, and <clears throat> like even the, the wish we'd all been ready, like that song I think is playing in the – in the rapture bit, in the movie adaptation of Hal Lindsey's book, uh, Larry Norman, who is I don't know the first Christian rocker, it, playing like the song like um um, how's it go? Uh, uh, a man and wife asleep in bed, she hears a noise and turns her head. He's gone. I wish we'd all been ready. Two men walking up a hill, one disappears. And one's left standing still. (laughs) I wish we'd all been ready. Because there's no time to change your mind. The sun has come and you've been left behind. You know, um, it's... Uh, That's...
1: Uh, so any eschatological passage, right, is going to make people uncomfortable. Yeah. The notion of the end of the world is terrifying to everybody. That makes sense. Like I get it, except for those who are so certain in their faith that they think they've they've got it right already. They've made their peace. They're never going to sin again. They'll never make another mistake again, and so they'll just be swept
2: through the gates of heaven and 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 right, you know, seated right next to Jesus. Um, well, and and one of the things about this passage, even about that anxiety, right, like the problem with that rather shitty reading is other than it's like not right. Um, is it misses the entire point of the text? Something you said, like this isn't Paul like threatening people. Yeah. He's literally writing a text and going, Hey, church in Thessalonica, you're in the capital city of Macedonia. You know, I like the place, the citizens of Rome that rule your area hang out. Um, um, I helped found this church. Like you know, like huh. and y'all the, you turned from idolatry. You were practicing idolatry and turned from it. And now you're trying to figure out as we await the coming of the day of the Lord. What do we do? And you're starting to have real questions. You're anxious. You're worried. You're like, when, what, where, why, and how? Like, it's uh, the busy town mystery for those of you that have small children and listen to that, watch that uh, horrible show. Um, Actually, it's not that bad. Anyway, who, what, when, where, why, and how? Uh, It's a little animals solve mysteries. No idea. (laughs) Uh, Anyway, the that's what i think of like they're all worried right yeah. And the whole text especially this end is is paul going yeah you don't know and you don't have to worry you know why because you're children of the light you're children of the day mm-hmm. like who's who's you are you're the your children of god it's settled so you don't need to worry like take a chill pill about the who, what, when, where, why, and how things, about how it's all working out. blah, 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 blah. And guess what? All you need to do is you be you. Yeah. You're children of the light. And so stop being anxious. Stop being fearful. Stop being worried. The one in charge of the culmination of history is one that knows your name, knows your face, and cares. This God has refused to be God without of you, pursued you all the way to the cross. And if you could just inhale that one, And let it sit. Maybe, maybe you could just dial back the anxiousness (laughs) and the fear. And I and I think that, like, while the historical context that we have today is pretty different, like once you dig into like the historical context, like what's going on, a number of the little bits in the passage signal things that historians like to raise for us. Like when you see it, you realize the text is. is much more timely than we anticipate and an invitation to – he's describing what the form of a vibrant faith looks like. Hmm. Um, And I think a lot of us dodge it because like once you hear Thief in a Night and stuff like that, you're like, oh, no, we're like one step away from a chart explaining Middle East foreign policy and how – Bodies disappear with folded clothes, <laughs> and and that's a, it, 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 and if people don't know, like that whole kind of rapture vision, uh, eschatology didn't exist in church history for the first nineteen hundred years, and so uh, like, it's an American original. It's one of our <laughs> unique contributions to Christianity. Uh, is uh is that escapist vision of existence and if you notice in the text that's not like he's not inviting us to escape he's inviting us to participate in the world in our context in our city as children of the light as members of the body of christ hmm. and even anyway i don't want to go into say anymore but like i I think your observation is really important i in it's important to say that up front because a lot of people, when they hear the verses, the uh, there's like a residue of the most shitty picture of God, one that's sitting around going like, oh, junk, when I'm going to open up my whoop ass on all the people that haven't asked me in their heart. right? Like, I'm going to do that, it. I'm going to do yeah, it. <laughs> don't make me do this. Look at all these idolaters in Thessalonica. <laughs> and, Anyway, I think that because we have this vision of God that's sub-Christian, right? Like, if your God's not at least as nice as Jesus, it shouldn't be called Christian. But yep. a lot of people's are. Like, uh, Jesus is—the uh, the Father uh, is uh, kind of an asshole, and we go to heaven because he took it out on the son. and uh, luckily uh, he felt guilty about it. You know, that's <laughs> just not Christianity. And if, if, if that's the God you meant, it deserves to be an atheist kind of thing. <laughs>
1: I think that we've talked a little bit on previous episodes about um, we, I mean me and whichever guest there 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 was at the time. I wish I could remember specifically, but I've talked on previous episodes about uh, this notion of God being uh, different than Jesus in in temperament, which yeah. I think is is a tempting view in. A lot of passages in the Old Testament. We read things in the Old Testament, and God seems vengeful. God seems angry. God seems jealous, and um, that's just the exact opposite to who Jesus was. And uh, you know, when He was here speaking directly to people, He He you know actively spoke against that. He preached against that, and and so it's it's easy to get mired in this notion that. The end of the world, uh, as we know it, that the the judgment day is going to be like uh, the, the the mean God's return, and that it's not going to be Jesus, you know, ushering us uh, into whatever the new kingdom is, but rather it's going to be um, people being struck down and turned into pillars of salt, and 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 you know, lit on fire, and and that whole idea, of course, is terrifying to people, but it's not really scriptural. And it's um, let's read a few verses here because I think in reading this, it doesn't seem that if you read slowly and and you think over each each passage, uh, each verse, it's not scary. It's actually kind of reassuring. At least, at least I thought so. So we'll jump in at verse one. Uh, the day of the Lord uh, is the header in the ESV. What's your preferred translation trip?
2: Uh, I, mean, I have the New Revised Standard. Okay, but. It, was that like to check and see if I could still remember Greek because i'm sadly I asked my wife at this point when I need to confirm Greek like I passed it like i did there was a time I could use the New Testament, but now I asked for help, and she is asleep so <laughs> um it's the n r s v the n r s all
1: right, fair enough. Now, concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. So this is the scary part, right? This is where uh, we we think peace and security, good times... And, uh, and if we get too comfortable in those good times, then we will be destroyed for becoming uh, too comfortable in that peace and security. And rather, we will find pain and destruction.
2: Yeah. How do you read that? Well, okay. I think, I mean, I mentioned earlier that Thessalonica is the capital city of Macedonia, right? Which is, you know, the equivalent of a state of the Roman Empire. Uh, the phrase uh the the phrase regularly used by the pax romana the, the the Roman empire is they bring the gift of peace and security to the world mm-hmm. okay so when the the context of this book are a, encouraging this deep eschatologically fueled vigilance of faith like you're going to be a vigilante Uh, faith militant, right? That kind of image. If you're going to do that in Thessalonica and he writes this letter, um, then you have to ask yourself, what is the actual context? The two main features to think about the religious context for new Christians uh, in a new church, because this is the earliest document in the New Testament. It's 50, like most date, 48 to 50, Mm -hmm. um, CE or AD, depending on which initials you use. Uh, The... Paul, founder of the church, writes them, the dominant – the use of that language is distinctively Roman. When, um, When Rome conquered a new territory, they did a number of maneuvers. They make a selection of people in the conquered territories, citizens of Rome, and then they leave soldiers there that are also citizens of Rome and they make them in charge of the ecclesia, and you might recognize this because this is the word Paul uses for the church, ecclesia. He puts new citizens of Rome in charge of the ecclesia, who then are going to reign over the territory on behalf of the peace and security of Caesar and his kingdom. Now, that's just like you don't have to explain anyone in Thessalonica because that shits on monuments. Go visit; it's still there. Like, <laughs> like Caesar's title, like Prince of Peace. That's on, like it on the coins. Son of God. Like this is I'm, like you don't have to exaggerate once you know the history. So when he says, when they say there is peace and security, and then sudden destruction comes, what's he getting at? He goes, you're sitting there and you you have been baptized into the body of Christ. You're trying to be faithful in a culture, in a system, a, a, a political system, an economic system, a cultural system that resists recognizing the full humanity and dignity of the other that Jesus called us to. Break it, think of all the ways Paul deconstructs, binaries that instill power. But he goes, when they say peace and security, you know what they bring? They bring crosses. Hmm. So when they say peace and security, you know it comes with destruction, right? It's BS. It's a lie. And you know why? Because how do they bring peace? They bring peace and security by building crosses. And we know that you've been redeemed into the body of Christ by bearing them, right? Like, once you say that, then that completely changes. And think of how this, like, you could Google Thessalonica, in this time and learn these basic historical facts. But if you abstract this text out, don't know that, uh, like, no New Testament's been written yet. This is literally the first thing in it. Mm-hmm. All we got is the Hebrew Bible and a group of people who are testifying to the resurrection of Jesus, and it breaks down sociological, economic, tribal, religious boundaries, and then they're trying to figure out how to live together, and witness through their communal living to this other ecclesia, this other reign, this other kingdom, because they've been made citizens, members of Christ, and are part of this other ecclesia, the church, that has a different Lord, a different King, and and offers a different kind of peace, right? So, I think what, like, when you put this, like, in the historical moment, and then you say, now concerning the times and seasons, if you're contrasting the vision God wants for the world revealed, inaugurated, and you're invited into in Christ, and the vision Caesar has for the world, that he's inaugurated through the building of crosses and domination system, and then you're in a place where the deepest commitments you have of faith And then you look at the world and your history and go, I don't believe this history makes sense with the God I've encountered. It makes perfect sense that Paul would say. Now, concerning the times and the seasons, I don't have to tell you that junk is fucked up. (laughs) We're getting to the anniversary of January 6th. Like, I mean, we're sitting here. There's a new variant. Like, if you look at our times there, you could stand up in a pulpit Take two deep breaths, exhale with ug, and then say, I think you know what I'm feeling, friends. (laughs) And everyone nods. And what is his next line? They're going to tell you peace and security come by this way, by these means, by this story. Mm -hmm. Isn't that like the... The the anxiety we have now is that each tribe has a story and a means and a way they want to seize power to give us peace and security because we're scared about the end of our ecological civilization. We're scared about the end of democracy. We're scared about what it would mean to reconcile and rework our power relations in the face of white supremacy. There are so many things that are sitting there, and we all get anxious, and we can't imagine a world without our deep commitment to our economic, political, and social system that That builds these issues, and yet, like because of all that anxiety, people come to us selling peace and security. Yeah, And then Paul goes, we all know what they're selling, right? They fucking put Jesus on a cross. Yeah. And I'm here to tell you, when you tasted and saw it was good, it's not that story, so let's be clear. And guess what that story brings with it? Judgment and wrath. Not because God's an asshole and is out to kill people. In fact, God gave God's self for all. Like this is Paul, right? Like mm-hmm. he literally says, I defeat sin, law, and death so that all may participate in God. This is First mm-hmm. Corinthians 15. Yeah. So this is not like I'm out to destroy people. He's wanting to say, when idolatry sets in, death Becomes normalized. You now think what is normal for the world? What is getting peace, establishing security? I'm using scare quotes because we're on video and none of you can see them. But you, (laughs) you, once you internalize a sickness, a lie, then you relate to it as if it's true. And I think what Paul's saying, these individuals in the church are struggling because everyone else is saying this lie. The story Rome's telling, the story the domination system is telling, the story exploitation being justified by is reality. It's natural. It's true. And Paul's just going, we know that's what they're selling, right? Mm. He's reminding them that you left that behind. That's the idolatry. The idolatry are communities and systems and structures and domination systems that that continue to set us one against another, that preserve the alienation of provision from the many for the for the excess of the few. All of, like he's sitting there going like, "We know this," and I and I say this because I think it's immediate. I, like if you knew the context, that's obvious. Like you can pick it up on it real quick. And I hope, I hope you see it. But like, when you say that your concern, the rest of the passage is not. Okay. So what do I have to do to make sure? um, Like when Jesus comes back, I'm not having eternal conscious torment now because he's (laughs) really pissed. And I, I would need to figure out how to save my neighbor, blah, 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 blah. If the context is the, 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 The battles of Ecclesia, the citizens and kingdom of Rome, and the citizens and kingdom of Christ, then he's just wanting to tell you what? You're children of the light. Hmm. Like you already walk in the day. Yeah. Don't be anxious. Don't be fearful. And when you trust one another, then you can thrive and survive in spaces that you don't, you aren't going to experience as affirmative. As inviting, Um, but guess what? The best power that system has is a cross, Hmm. and we know how that story ends. You it's like uh, I mean, just those few verses. Like once I start when I uh, and I hadn't I preached that sermon series five or six years ago. I don't read First Thessalonians um, (laughs) It's a habit. It's a when you say why. (laughs) <laughs> I I I reread it, and then you know, a small perk of working at the University of Edinburgh is we have, like, a ton of very gifted um, uh, New Testament scholars. And so, like, when you mention it, I, I'm in staff room, and I ask them background info. They start popping it out. Mm-hmm. I reread it, and that line comes up, and I'm like, WTF. I mean, it makes perfect sense. The ESV
1: even puts that in quotation marks, like uh mm-hmm. this is this is a uh this is one of their phrases, this is one of the lies that they tell you. And so the warning isn't against the judgment and destruction that is that God brings, but the destruction and and the um the deceit that uh, the other empire brings, that like yeah. the the uh the those in power here on earth bring. I, I love that. Thank you so much for that context, because I think it was really important. For me to understand, uh, and I think for a lot of people that read this in an abstract, say, "Oh, wow, this is a little scary. This is a little, this is a little freaky. I mean, I don't want labor. I don't want to be destroyed as as labor pains come on uh, come upon a pregnant
2: woman. That sounds
1: sounds terrible."
2: Well, you, you know, in the, I mean, and you could think of it, I, like if if we were hanging out with everyone listening, then I would say, like, what are the lines you hear? that make you uncomfortable but too many of the people around you are on your social media feed not <laughs> like when when they say make america great again when they say no all lives matter when mm-hmm. they say like whatever defund the police or whatever you know like just think of anything some tribe puts on it like d- when you look at it and examine it how does that test up and hold up to your commitment to a different regime a different kingdom and such and um and it it and I think it's important to recognize how Paul knows they know what they're saying, right? He's being really direct. Mm-hmm. And so often, especially in context of privilege, we're never that direct because we all know that it's going to, it's going to cost us something. And so it's, it's much safer to take a picture of Paul talking to an alternative ecclesia in capital city of Rome and then make it about you, the individual in your neighborhood, at your work and your family. And the threat isn't the, the death dealing outcomes of a system, but the coming judgment and violent death brought by God. Um, Because what, what is no longer threatened once you change the horizon of what Paul's talking about, from kind of a, the symbolic structure that organizes and mediates our relationships mm-hmm. to your individual engagement. What's no longer on the table are those questions around economics, politics, culture, society, systemic issues. Once, the, once you narrow it to be the horizon of the threat of judgment is you. Uh, all of a sudden, God is a set for and against individuals as opposed to being the God who's for all people. So God is against all principalities, powers, and systems, and institutions that threaten life. Hmm. And uh, it, it, one really good example to pick up on that is like at the very beginning of 1 Thessalonians, um, it's, uh was on verse 9. You know, after he does his welcome, he goes, uh, for the people of those regions report, you know, he's, you know, he's, about how he's heard about what they're doing, uh, what kind of welcome we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God, and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath that's coming.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Right, so, the, the, what is the transition there of allegiance, to the crucified one who's not dead and is coming, right? Like who is the one who is alive and coming and you've been brought into? Uh, it's what you found when you turn from idolatry. Now, um, one of my buddies, um, she told me that, I, I said, what should I know about Thessalonica? She said, "Uh, giant, giant parties that's how they did their idol worship you know why what was the biggest cult the wine god <laughs> of course which is why in
1: the next few verses we get yeah. a reference to drunkenness uh and sleep and drunkenness but drunkenness specifically
2: Dionysus right like the like and so and, and those are like late night idol parties you get drunk loaded naked and bang right, like that kind of thing. And because in the excess and giving yourself over to your desires and passions, right, like that is the place for the arrival of God. So you turn from that to the one who did what? Said not my will, but thine be done. The one who did not count equality with God something to be grasped, but humbled himself. You let that same mind be in you. Like you're turning from this to this, from an idol to an actual living God who gave who is faithful to the cross, right? Anyway, like mm-hmm. when that's like the beginning point of what he's talking about, then I think it makes more sense of, you can see that from the very beginning, idolatry is the issue. That And because you're in a system, in a culture, in a time, where those around you are so smitten with this story that justifies Desire, excess to the destruction of the community and well-being God dreams. That's what you turn from. Mm -hmm. But everyone else, that makes sense. So he's going to encourage them to remember what is normal to your neighbor is idolatry to the life-giving God. And it's not because God doesn't want you to enjoy your life. It's because that way leads to destruction, the destruction of community and the preservation of institutions, systems, and idols who kill you. And what do all idols demand? Sacrifice. Mm -hmm. And if you look at our world today, I think you could say the same thing. What are the things that control our desires that demand sacrifice? Sacrifice. If you think about how our economic system works out, we're always trying to get more, do better, mm-hmm. thrive—all that kind of stuff. Get your side hustle on, all yeah. that kind of <laughs> stuff, whatever to preserve a place to have a place in the world. Yeah.
1: Labor sacrifice, uh, social yes. sacrifice, uh, yeah, for sacrifices of freedom. That, I mean, there's there's any number of things that yeah that, that that we're supposed to bow down to in our in our world today that that uh, draws us away from from worshiping. The God, the the one true God.
2: Yeah, yeah. It's a I, I like. I think to me, I mean, that's a that's a long setup for what's going on at the in the chapter. But I, I think when it, once you pick that up, then these other passages as you go through make more sense yeah. um, as something not to run from and hide from, but as actual invitations for us to think. In our world, and you or I are both citizens of the current empire. Um, what does it mean to live in that world where everyone else thinks we sacrifice our relationships, our, our relationship to nature, our enemies, all sorts of things to the market Mm -hmm. and God, uh, to our tribal allegiances. Uh, like these questions are so pertinent and important. And Paul is sitting there to encourage us to go, uh, what they call normal in reality is idolatry, so remember it. And I know that's a challenge and thing I wrestle with all the time. I can hear in my mind, oh, let the same mind be in me that was in Christ Jesus. And I can hear, well, I know what the output of this is. Or I know <laughs> if I do these things, it helps my kid get into a better school and then blah, 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 blah. Or I know what, like go through the list of everything I was told makes perfect sense and it's just good to do. Those become the very places you're deciding between idolatry and fidelity, and Paul goes to the church and goes, "Hey, remember,
1: remember." And and I think resisting um, resisting an empire uh, in that in that way at that time is uh, is surely to lead to a certain degree of suffering. And, and suffering for your faith is something that Paul talks about in every letter. Timothy mm-hmm. talks about it. James talks about it. Uh, it, it's, it was a normal part of being a Christian at that point, a follower at that point, was to understand that what you're being called to do, believe, how you're uh, called to behave, um, and how you're called to love is at odds with the world around you and as such it is likely that you will see some ramifications of that you will um you will see consequences and um and elsewhere in the in le- in the letters we see that it should be counted as a blessing that that's not really yeah. mentioned here exactly but it's i think it's really um it's interesting let's let's go through the the the, the next few verses here i think we we left off at 4 Uh, But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief, for you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for our helmet, the hope of salvation." And I'll pause there because this metaphor is a common one, and it's one that he's saying this is how you protect yourself—not just being different, but yeah. um, but uh, guarding, girding yourself, guard, you know, uh, armoring yourself with faith, um, with uh, love, uh, uh, protecting your head uh, from mm-hmm. the worry of of uh, judgment or. Destruction or damnation, even uh, f- with the hope of salvation and understanding mm-hmm. that there is there is uh, a hope for salvation. Uh, it is real. The love of God is real, and that salvation will come, uh, even if it takes a war, uh, or e- e- metaphorically, even if it takes a war to to get there.
2: Hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think in those passages just about the armor thing like the important thing is when you recognize he's saying the church is an alternative community with alternative deep commitments and fidelities to the dominant ones in the capital city that you live in um and those that those deep commitments contrast not just with where you go on Sunday but how you embody your existence in the world it's interesting to note that the that he d- he gives you armor because armor is not it's a defensive thing mm. it's not like like you, you it's built for defense because we already know what Paul thinks the weapons of the church are like they if you if you go read through his epistles when he talks about the church engaging the world it has to do with Um, let's see, there's a conflict between Jews and Gentiles running through, and what does he do? In his letters to rich churches that are predominantly Gentiles, he says, I know that the predominantly Jewish churches uh, don't even know if you really count as being Christian, but you got money. Let's demonstrate that the heart of Christ is within you and, and pay, donate money to care for the poor of that church because you know they're your brothers and sisters in Christ even if they don't recognize you yet. That's his weapon. Or, like, I mean, we could, I don't want to go into an excursus of all the modes of inclusion that Paul does in his letters. But, like, when he attacks, the attack is how do we embody as a collective an alternative to what everyone thinks already has to be the case? So, when you see armor here, then he's saying, like, what is it that we need to do to preserve our identity as a people? who swim against a stream of oppression of 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 dislocation of 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 judgment of of antagonisms right like the like even the way you set up a church an ecclesia for rome involved putting people giving people artificial privilege over the masses so that they would defend their privilege by exploiting the many, and in doing so, preserve the, quote, peace and security of Rome. It's like, give them enough of the take that they'll screw their own. That was how you did it. And what did Paul do? Well, when one church that had a bunch of people that were slaves in it showed up at communion, and the people that were rich landowners had already ate a meal, had church, and were drunk, He wrote him a letter and said, you suck. (laughs) Not because you shouldn't have a good meal at church and potlucks are of the Lord. It's because you do not get to do the table if all of the body of Christ isn't invited and able to come. That's a different way of demonstrating how you do the attack of this other ecclesia. So the armor there is uh, defensive. Hmm. And I think what it's inviting us to do is to say, take your life seriously it is so easy to never lapse into living before you die and if the body if you're in the if the mind of Christ within you it's the invitation to live before you die the invitation to live before you die is to take your life the way you exist in the world seriously and if you're going to be serious when the dominant structures that shape our lives, are set against your deepest commitments. They're actually idolatrous. Then you need to put on a breastplate and a helmet. Not because you hate those on the outside, but because the only way you can bless them is by embodying something different. And if you're not protected, if you don't take your life seriously, then you're going to go with the flow. You're going to do whatever they say to do. That, that, I think, is so important. And, you know, oddly enough, like, as people are or aren't coming out of, you know, lockdown, the, when you look at the great resignation, people retiring early, people refusing to go back to work for shit pay, uh, the the eruption of labor organizing Um, tons of ministers are leaving congregations have treated them like crap. Like there's so many people because a pandemic forced us out of a system, set back and went, Oh my God, I've been killing myself for a career and I've been missing out on my friends and my family and my being a good parent and a good partner. And I don't want to do that again. Like, I think we're at a moment, right? Like that, that, uh, the the idolatry that's inherent in kind of Western market advancement, the assumptions we have in a neoliberal order, a lot of people opted, had to, were forced out of them, and then are like, you can't really tell me to get back in that. <laughs> and at the same time, the you know the uh, essential workers were sacrificed because they had to be in it. And we're at a moment where people on both sides of that divide are going like, I don't know. I don't know if that's what I want. And here Paul's going like, hey, hey, church, if you woke up a little bit, if you thought the life you were living was bad news for the people you care about, your friends, your family, your children, your coworkers, and now you don't know if you want to jump back in that normal, hey, If you've been in in an an antagonistic relationship with a lot of your neighbors, if you don't think democracy could work anymore, like think of all these ways, it goes (laughs) like, maybe, maybe we don't want to go right back into what we were doing. And remember, that system is an idol. And here's what you need. I'm not telling you to hide. I'm telling you to go in with a defense. And the defense is the mind of Christ. The defense is what faith empowers. It's what the Spirit gives. It's what happens when salvation works itself out through you. And I hope like this kind of moment is what, what we're doing as people of faith, because tons of people, not just religious people, are going what we used to call normal and we sacrificed for. We sacrificed relationships, money. Think of Here's a good example. I, I'm in Scotland. I'm from North Carolina and have spent half my life now chasing degrees and positions where I don't get to go fishing with my dad. I don't get to have coffee with my mom and all my best friends from high school that didn't also join the become one of the cool people. I only get to see when I get to go visit them. Hmm. And then I'm sitting here in lockdown and they are the ones that Skype me and the people here I don't talk to. And then I say to myself, what am I doing? And my kids are like, well, why can't we just go see Grammy and G-Pops? And can we Zoom with our cousins? Right? Like those relationships, those connections were sacrificed for me jumping through all the hoops to be successful academic. I did the same thing to be a successful minister. And what has it bought me? And I'm sitting there and here's what Paul says. I know you're about to make these decisions again. You're trying to figure this out. When you and Alicia look at your children and their future, do you want to be the person that said, This is how we win? This is how we arrive? This is how we succeed? Do you want to do that? Or how would you relate to this question differently if, I don't know, you had spirit filled armor between the demands that are before you? Are you going to keep sacrificing? Is it like the, the, and I don't think this is a, I don't think this is like me squeezing the moment into this text. I think in his context, this is like an invitation for us to take our faith seriously. And that means taking our lives seriously, recognizing that all of us, wherever you are in church history, are in a world where the dominant system has never been the kingdom of God. mm mm-hmm. So in what ways does that system demand sacrifices of you? In what ways does it demand allegiance that contrary to the deepest desires of God? Uh, And this image of armoring up isn't memorizing a few Bible verses to quote when your friend shows you porn on their phone or like that kind of stuff. It's literally – like. Taking your life seriously so you recognize the consequences to those around you—neighbor, na- nature, enemy, friends, lovers, family. Mm.
1: There's no there's no political system. Uh, there's no force of uh, culture, and I don't. And I think you're right in saying there never really has been one that actively encourages us to be better Christians. Uh, earth, the the earth that we yeah. live in is fallen. I, I really kind. I, I, I believe that I see you know the beauty of God's creation every day. I believe that I can encounter the Spirit in any number of ways. But the dominant culture that we live in, and that Christians have lived in since the beginning of 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 Christianity, since since Christ's appearance on Earth and even before then, has always been hostile to a mindset of love. Uh, has always been hostile to a mindset of welcoming and giving. Uh, it's always been about us versus them, and or uh, or it's been about what you can get and what you can gain. Mm-hmm. And so, I think you're absolutely right. This the 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 metaphorical war that I was referring to when it comes to putting on your spiritual armor uh, wasn't that you are going to be charging into battle, right. but it's that you're going to be under siege in some way or another, uh, in, in your attempt to maintain, uh, a faith that is true and good and pleasing, uh, and, and following of, of Christ's message, like y- y- you're going to be under a constant onslaught, uh, be it mm-hmm. from the, the sort of sexual immorality that Paul's warning against in chapter four, uh, that we still see today everywhere in our culture, uh, greed, uh, idols of any kind—it's—it's—it's yeah. um, it's, uh, it's a real challenge for us, and 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 you know I think that there are degrees to which certain social movements or certain political movements might embody uh, a more welcoming presence or um, a more loving attitude towards people, but ultimately all of these things are empires of their own. All of these things are um, are drawing our energy away from the unifying message of the gospel and, and drawing it towards the achievement of uh, personal gain or political power or, um, you know, any of the number of, of, uh, of temptations or, or the destruction that that Paul says in uh, not not destruction wrath that 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 is mentioned mm-hmm. in in verse nine. For God is not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that w- whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with Him. That's what we're supposed to be doing, as hard as it seems like uh, that can be sometimes.
2: Hmm. Well, so two things. One, what I'd say is that the what. What's possible at any moment in history, and what, and maybe what fidelity looks like varies, right? So, um, you know, Paul is thinking of his moment where, like, he's dealing with the emerging conflict between the synagogues and temple life because the temple hadn't been destroyed yet, right? When this is written. And, the inclusion of Gentiles into that process, right? So that's one conflict. Then you have like the Roman conflict and the big question before the destruction of the temple, there's all these tensions uh, between the different kind of sects of Judaism at that time about how you dealt with the Roman problem between the Zealots, the third philosophy, Sadducees, Pharisees, that that all kind of thing. Um, But like when he's asking all those questions, the, the, what the kind of collective response looks like here is an alternative collective presuming the dominant regime, right? The empire now. And a lot of times that was, if you look through all of scripture, Israel's situation where it was the oppressed minority, but other times it was in charge mm-hmm. and it was the domination system, right? So, um, if you, if you if you look at the history of Israel they all of a sudden like what was Solomon's problem when the prophet shows up it's like dude you got slaves now and you're selling <laughs> military equipment like the, w- you think that's working and now <laughs> you're bringing in all these different gods because you're marrying all these women who are connected to other deities and other tribes because you don't think Yahweh's on your side right like mm-hmm. so the what fidelity looks like if you're in that situation is Josiah. Josiah is like, we are supposed to be the people of God. Now we have to reintroduce to the collective, which is at that point um, still a monarch, you know, like like the Torah. So the I say that because I think when I think of American democracy at this point, I wouldn't want the, the recognition that all collectives are – problematic to differentiate the hermeneutic of discernment that there's a big difference between Reverend Barber and the Moral Monday movement and the Proud Boys in Charlottesville. Um and they aren't equal. But they aren't, but like Reverend Barber knows this, like I mean people can go check out when we've talked, like they that like Jesus ain't coming because of a protest, but the arrival of of God's deepest desires in a moment can come because people are committed to a movement, right? Like so the the, the relative, I, I just wouldn't want it, I don't know, maybe, I don't know if this is a contrast to what you're saying, or, or more like just a clarity, just to go like, don't, sometimes you put on the armor of God because you are a nonviolent. Uh, like, I, I mean, I've done this where if you are the straight white minister guy, you make sure everyone knows you're a minister and you stand in front of your friends that are people of color at a protest, and the racist dudes that want to hit you have to decide if they want to hit the large white minister guy who looks like uh their friend from high school. Right? Like, <laughs> and and I anyway, I wouldn't want to relativize that difference and just go like in scripture, Paul's in one context, in a like. And he's negotiating his own Roman citizenship, right, at this point. But that's different than our context. Our context is much more like being an Israelite at the time you realize that you've become Pharaoh. Sure. And so what fidelity looks like varies. Um, and and I think this is something that Pope Francis has done a really good job at pointing out. Like in his last two encyclicals, um, like the like, – one – is on the way our consumption patterns and uh, political blindness has generated the ecological crisis. And then what does fidelity look like? Solidarity with the oppressed and God's creation in whatever vocational situation and influence you have. Beautiful invitation. So for some people, that looks really different than you and I (laughs) because— we are at a different level of influence, power, and consumption. Then in his last one about like the brotherhood of, uh, uh, of humanity, he he says that that um, what does fidelity look like? It's recognizing our relationships that the story we tell ourselves is silenced. So uh, think of think of all the people we know that could kindly and lovingly and graciously relate to the person across from them. But if you think about the impact of your decisions, um, the, the possessions, the consumption, the the power and stuff you use, that there are all these relations you have, but you don't see the face that are destructive. And he says, what does it mean? And he uses some of Paul's language here, right? Like, what does it mean to have the mind of Christ? What does it mean to recognize The solidarity of humanity, because God has become chosen solidarity with us. It means choosing your siblings globally. Hmm. And you're connected to them even if you don't recognize it. So the church is to raise awareness of our connections and invite us into solidarity and liberation and life giving uh, in the gift, uh, giving life in all those spaces. And that same invitation, right, sounds different depending on where you are and what your context is. Um, And I think that Paul's invitation here invites us to have to then negotiate like our own space, habits, relations, and and impact of what it is uh, we're contributing to the world. And that's verse 11. I
1: mean, uh, unity or um, solidarity. Mm-hmm. Is what closes out this section of the letter. Uh, verse eleven says, "Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. You're doing the right thing." But reminder, this is what we're this is what we're doing. We're encouraging each other to grow in our faith. We're encouraging each other to to um, maintain uh, the maintain our light to remain uh, being people of the light uh to to um, maintain your defenses against uh, what might be a hostile uh system or or a political body or whatever that may be and and um and I think that the message while it, we began this conversation talking about what a what a, what a spooky concept this was that um the Lord Jesus creeps in in the middle of the night. <laughs> And starts starts making people disappear. Uh, in reality, it is uh, it's actually I think a, a really reassuring, um, affirming uh, statement about community in faith, about um, maintaining the proper attitude, maintaining the proper um, heart when faced with an adversarial position in society and um when faced with the potential for um uh, faced with the potential for danger or for hostility or uh or for the potential for oppression that maintaining your spiritual armor is mm-hmm. one of and and, and maintaining a uh, a community in which we we um we edify each other's faiths that is the best way um, to to stay Christ-like, to um, to stay a community of faith that is um, productive in the sense that we grow in love and we grow the community with
2: love. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I I think that's really important. Like encouraging the building up line. Um, I think a lot. I think the biggest temptation with lines like that when you decontextualize the letter is that we think that to encourage and to build up means we mute ourselves on all the topics that are actually, are you committing idolatry or not? <laughs> right? So like we want to encourage, we want to build up. And so then what do we do by the time we get done, eliminating things we discuss and take stands on that, like encourage and building up is, will we have, Uh, meals together where we don't talk about anything important that impacts others, blah, 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 blah. And, um, and then it gets real awkward because no one's allowed to ask if you're vaccinated or masking, right? Like, you know, things like that. And, and, but at the end of this passage, when he says like, encourage and build each other up, it's encouraging and building each other up because we already know we have an agenda set by Christ. Mm.
1: Yeah, it's not. It's not build like a, a you know goose up your your bro and like make him feel really good yeah. about himself, right? That's not. It's just like you're the best, dude. You're so great. No, it's like let's build a stable foundation. Let's mm-hmm. build, uh, you know, let's build a temple of of our faith in our community. That you know, that's the at least that's how I that's how I read it.
2: Yeah, the uh, uh, one of the things that comes to my mind of that is I I've led a bunch of uh, adult um, confirmation groups and and if people don't know like this is a tradition where you know let's say you get baptized as a, chi- as a kid and then at some point you confirm your identity of baptism that's the confirmation part become a full adult participant in the religious community and normally confirmations involve like making sure you know the trinity correctly and the history of the denominator things that which, whatever. Um, and I find them boring. And also, uh, or the other side is like you teach them the coolest theology that whatever person's teaching it likes, which I like that, but they can listen to it on the internet. And so, uh, when I think of that building up, encouraging one another, I think of what happens when you're in a community that says, and I do this in confirmation, we're going to spend the next year doing experiments in truth, taking what Jesus invited his disciples to do, thinking how would this invitation, this teaching, what would it look like in our time? And then we all work it out and then we all do it for a couple of months. And then we do it again with a different saying. Mm. And when I've done those, I feel like those to me are like images of what encouraging and building up looks like, uh, one example that I think works well on a, I mean, one time we like literally sold half of what we had, but you know, like the Jesus says, sell all you have, give it to the poor. John the Baptist, his cousin, um, at least in Luke, uh, says, sell half. If you got one cloak, get. <laughs> if you got two cloaks, sell one. Anyway, but but that was powerful. Looking at how you relate to your stuff, right? Anyway, mm-hmm. but like a popular lying, especially if you're in California, in Los Angeles, and these are people that are adults becoming Christian and weren't religious growing up. They love Jesus. Do not judge. And like why Christians love that may not be why Jesus said it, but you discover it as you, you know, um, try to build each other up and encourage each other to do these things. And so we came up Um, in the group, about 12 adults. Most of them signed up because I did confirmation with their teenagers and then were jealous. And so they're like, (laughs) I've never been confirmed. Uh, And so in the week, we agree, like, if you judge someone, just text the name. If we all know them, maybe an initial or make a name up. Doesn't matter. Jesus can translate. Um, And you text it. So, like, if I'm in the group and I'm like, Ariel. Oh. Oh judge 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 you know like it's going through my head and then everyone else gets it and they're like God you made and know Ariel like this is give give trip the eyes to see Ariel as you see Ariel and the courage to love Ariel as you desire Ariel be loved like the, the prayer itself inserts right what our judgment in the context of how God sees yeah, and it invites us to it. And you know, the community is doing what encouraging one another and building each other up. And then Paul I, see as a minister, I said, indeed, as you were doing, you say those things in sermons, knowing that one person in the church might be doing it, but they all wish they were. So they'll take credit for it. <laughs> <laughs> and so like when you do that, then you get back together, you discuss it and stuff. And then, At some point in the month you're doing this, someone eventually texts their own name. So all of a sudden, Trip texts Trip. And so you get the text. You're like, oh, John, it says from Trip, but it says Trip. And then you say, well, I guess we do this. God, you made know and love Trip completely. Give Trip the eyes to see Trip as you see Trip and the courage (laughs) to love Trip as you desire Trip be loved. And then you get back and discuss that. Once it happens... Everyone texts their own name more than they text anyone else's. Because you know what the secret of not judging is? Is that Jesus knows our asses judge ourselves more than anyone else in the world. And most of our judgment of other people is because we can't even recognize ourselves as loved. In the very heart of the gospel, the very heart of why this is idolatry if you live in a world that's not built on that, is that the God who made you and knows you completely, loves you completely, gave God's self fully to the world. The world said, no, God raised Christ up and you are a part of God's yes to all the no's. And if you can internalize that, your neighbor, your enemy, and even your partner asking for an apology when you know you did wrong are lovable. Like Mm -hmm. that is a shift. And I think it's, that is the build each other up, encourage one another. Is it, And I say it because here's one of the fun facts. This is a complete aside, but I think it's important. Super nerd moment because we hadn't got to it. And I know you're wrapping up. So when, when people say things like, because I know you've been recovering over the course of your podcast, your love for Paul, you started (laughs) out being real dismissive. When people are like, the only thing Paul knows about Jesus is God raised him from the dead and communion. And when he quotes the greatest commandment, he only gets half of it. Love your neighbor. does not even say love your God. Love God with all your heart. It just says, Love your neighbor as yourself. Um, in here, in this passage, he's assuming that everyone knows um, the teachings of Jesus that are in the Q document if you're a New Testament scholar, but Matthew 25, 24, and Luke 12, where Jesus gives these awkward parables and stories like, Stay alert, stay prepared, right? It, because in the text, he assumes everyone knows it. Like, he's like, you know how we know to stay awake and stay prepared. Well, what's he referring to? This is 50. This is literally the first thing written we have in the New Testament. Hmm. He's saying that the early church all knows Jesus gave these sermons. This is like one of the only other places where there's a reference to language and particular verbs and nouns that Jesus uses in his own stories. That um, Because it's in Matthew and Luke, but not in Mark. It means there was some way it those stories were preserved that then don't show up in Mark but show up in Matthew and Luke, which are around you like uh, after the destruction of the temple, like seventy five to eighty five, depending on who's dating uh, the two gospels. But like the important thing to me, one nerdy wise, is that Paul. This is an evidence that Paul's much more familiar with the teachings of Jesus than you get in the letters because here he presumes they know them. Yeah, and and the other side is that when he's saying like. Lord Jesus Christ, all this kind of stuff. He's saying it to people he knows knows the teachings, not people that know just the Roman road and then say they're a biblical Christian. <laughs> That's what most people do with Paul. They like they're like, well, if you ask Jesus, you're a sinner. Like uh, all of sin and fallen short of the glory of God. They they like that. Uh, uh, you know, what's that dude on the growing pains? Um, the acted in the Left Behind movies.
1: Kirk uh, 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 Cameron. Is it
2: Kirk? Yeah. Cameron? Yeah. Yeah, I've seen some of his YouTube videos where he comes up with weird witnessing techniques. And um, like like people think like Paul gets used for that. But here I just want to say like the earliest book in the New Testament, he is assuming a church he was at for about three weeks. All know the teachings of Jesus enough that he can say, hey, y'all remember that talk he gave in Luke and Matthew that aren't even written for another 30 years? (laughs) So the teachings of Jesus are really what he's talking about here when he's talking about Lord Jesus Christ and the way of God and all that kind of stuff. Uh, It's really important. Part of rehabilitating Paul is actually taking him seriously when he talks to other Christians of the churches he founded, that they actually are inspired by what Jesus said, did, and endured. Anyway.
1: No, I think um, there's a temptation to, because of Paul's past also, like, oh, well, he's – he's um intellectualizing what was at its heart like the gospel of love and forgiveness and and um, openness and paul is then like creating a structure around it and and trying to um to codify it in some way but i think the more you read uh his letters the more you see that they are absolutely true to jesus's teachings um you know they are influenced by culture in the way that any any writer of any anything at that time or before would have been influenced by their culture. But um, it is uh, it's Paul's legit. I take it all back. I take it all back. <laughs> I'm so sorry, Paul. I hope you can forgive me.
2: Well, the people the people that uh, published a few letters in his name in the New Testament, uh, they're. Their flourishes are more problematic to me than Paul himself. (laughs) Uh, Um, Namely around gender things.
1: Yeah. Uh, But this is exactly what I'm saying, and I think that that's why it's easy to get mired in that. It's easy to to lose sight of um, what was actually being accomplished in the church at the time. They were doing Mm -hmm. incredible things. I mean, Acts Acts has also been uh, on my mind a lot lately, just thinking about how brave these these people were in going out and – and building a church that had nothing, essentially nothing but hostility going for it early on and, and preaching in such a way that it attracted uh, a, a significant number of followers. And, and it began churches in, in cities mm-hmm. all over the place.
2: So can I ask you a question? Shoot. Sure. So, I mean, you obviously picked this text and then, you know, are reading and preparing for it. And then we're talking and you're discovering that if you ask a question to a Baptist minister, he, the short answer is longer than you anticipated. <laughs> um, like, w- like, what was the verse or moment or question that seizes you when you read it? Like w- when you read it before we talked, like, like what was the, what was the area that made you, you know, stumble or linger.
1: Well, I think the the first few verses that that you clarified significantly, um, you know, discussing the 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 return of Jesus and and uh, and then the dis- the discussion of destruction and how those things seem paired next to each other, and so there's like this implication that 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 um, that the Lord will return like a thief in the night, and then. We'll all be destroyed because we're so comfortable thinking, uh, that, that, it, that there's peace and security, knowing the context, the historical context of that changed my, my interpretation of it completely. I think the part that, that I lingered on that I found inspiring was the, the armor and mm-hmm. the, um, and the mention specifically of, uh, you know, encourage and build each other up because, um, you know, I think that in my experience, even even in the last year and a month or two since I started doing this show is i've I've found a community of of people that are in some ways like me in some ways very different than me and and mm-hmm. you know trying to form uh relationships with other believers. Uh, I've found incredible encouragement and incredible love and acceptance and uh, it's been really inspiring to me so so obviously any instance I see of that in scripture is uh, is like this reminder to uh, to continue on in um, in building each other up however that may be in, 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 uh, in different communities.
2: yeah no I and, and I think that you know one of the things something like your podcast does, Is you a lot of public, um, like public discussion, like that's like you can just overhear this about scripture. Normally, is the fruit of people that spend their life doing it, and that's their like profession, Mm. you know. And I mean, not to yeah, pick on my fellow gilded. Uh, members that have been on your podcast, but yeah, the episodes I've really enjoyed are listening to people who decide to take a text seriously and read it, and it's it's like not their day job. <laughs> not that like I love that it's day jobs because it's basically the only thing I could do other than make beer, maybe and coach flag football. I I don't I don't know what my I don't know I, I don't know what my job is without people doing that, uh-huh. but. Um, I find it wonderfully lovely to hear conversations with people that will take a text seriously that is so strange it makes their world strange again. (laughs) And um, oftentimes conversations that I have about text are either with students going in debt so they can repeat things I say in the right situation to get a good grade. Or with peers who all have debt because we learned <laughs> what it is the guild says when we do these things. Um, and the intellectual quest so often, I, I think partially because it's jealous of what how effective sci- science is in our current day, it, it, it inspires an epistemology, like a kind of knowing of distance. Like you know it better because you're separated from it. Which is accurate if you're looking under a microscope or, like, you know, looking for the Higgs boson in a, coll- in a collider, but not if you're reading scripture and trying to figure out how to be human. <laughs> they religion is an epistemology, a, a kind of knowing that involves entanglement and engagement. Um, and I, as a listener who is a professional intellectual. I get, you know, my nerdiness gets turned on at people that take it seriously and wrestle with it. And I don't know what they're going to say because they haven't Mm -hmm. internalized whatever the general consensus is on everything at this moment in time. And for those of us that have, you know, (laughs) (laughs) it already narrows what you're going (laughs) to say.
1: Yeah, it's it's interesting to listen back to episodes where I got passages the meanings of passages I feel like wrong but what I got out of them almost felt like more important to me than when I learned what the true meaning or the context of it was it kind of was like oh well that doesn't really speak to me in the same way that it did when I didn't know shit about it uh in some ways it's like it's a blessing to to be outside of um uh outside of the world of like theory in 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 a lot of ways. But of course I have this drive to continue to learn more. Mm -hmm. Would love to go to seminary. I think eventually.
2: Well, I support it. Um, If it's one where I'm friends with people, you should just uh, tell me so I can email them and say, this is a good idea. (laughs) Uh, So you said you love the, the armor imagery. Like, did you compare it to what, I mean, I most scholars think is where he's getting the image from in Isaiah. It's
1: what came to mind, but I didn't. I didn't have the passage that that, like the passage didn't immediately click for me. But it's like this is a familiar image. I'm I'm recognizing this right now. I mean,
2: a lot of people know the so Ephesians, one of those texts that people debate whether Paul wrote. um, In Ephesians chapter six, and we don't have to go read this, but like for those who are listening and want to, six chapter six, I think it's verse ten and following is the full armor of God bit. where it comes from is Isaiah 59. Um, and it, the I'll, I'll just read these verses. and It's interesting what Paul uh, uses and doesn't use. Um, he put on righteousness like a blessed plate, a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for, cl- uh, for clothing and wrapped himself in fury as in a mantle. Huh. So, Interesting, who is putting it on? God is putting it on here, not the people of God. Mm. What is it the people of God put on? Just the first half. Yeah, just the you helmet putting, and the breastplate. Yep. <laughs> you're putting plate, on the it. defensive part. Paul is literally editing Isaiah and going, you don't get to put on the attack.
1: Don't worry about fury and vengeance. Someone else will take yeah. care of that if it needs to
2: happen. And then, right, right. And then where does the vengeance— And wrath come from in 1 Thessalonians. It's the consequences of idolatry. It's not God being an ass munch. That is the, that's like the beautiful part. And that kind of maneuver of Isaiah is what Jesus does in Luke chapter 4, where his first sermon in uh, his hometown Nazareth Jesus shows up and they're like, hand him the scroll. And he goes, the spirit of the Lord is upon me is anointed me to preach good news to the poor, all that kind of stuff. Um, um, recovery aside to the blind, proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then Jesus goes, this, uh, today, this is fulfilled bit. Well, if you go actually look at the passage, he cut out and deliver the wrath of God. <laughs> and so it, and then, what does Jesus do after it? He goes, "Today it's fulfilled, so it's happening now." And those are this passage and the one Jesus quotes are both passages about the quote "day of the Lord," which is you know what Paul's talking about here. Mm. Um, it that's the phrase that gets used in, uh, in the Greek translations of the Hebrew Bible, "day of the Lord," uh, which is what Paul and Jesus would have been familiar with. Uh, the, but the fascinating part about it is Jesus and Paul both. Cut out God as your enemy, as any human's enemy. Mm -hmm. Humans are not God's enemies. Sin, law, death, systems, structures, things that pervert our relations away from God's life-giving affirmation and liberation, those are getting judged. If If you worship them, things get sacrificed. But people, no one is God's enemy anymore. And so, Paul does it you, as we've talked about here, but Jesus goes, when he says that, everyone in the synagogue is quiet. And then Jesus goes, hey, you remember when Elijah was prophet? And they're like, yeah, yeah. You remember how there's a, like a big famine? And they're like, yeah. You know how he found a Gentile widow, did some miracles to make sure she could eat? And they're like, yeah. He goes, that's what I'm talking about. And then they try to kill him. <laughs> it's, like, I say it because I think Paul and Jesus both are showing us how do you receive your religious tradition? You receive it. And then what do you do? The ways it inspires living life and giving and liberating enactment in the world. You inherit it with fidelity and gusto, and you put on breastplates and helmets to protect it. And then when the tradition and faith you were handed sets you against your neighbor or your enemy as objects of divine wrath and judgment to be excluded and marginalized and harmed, then you cut it on behalf of the spirit that dwelt in Mary, that dwelt in Jesus, that descended on the disciples and fills up all of the body of Christ. Mm-hmm. That image you see here in Paul, something Jesus does, and they're both doing it to Isaiah. And, I, and when I think of individuals today wrestling with Scripture, remember, Paul and Jesus, you have good examples here, loved Isaiah. They're, they're high-quality Jewish individuals. <laughs> and part of being faithful sometimes is saying, Scripture's so right, I have to protect it with a breastplate and a helmet, and sometimes our inherited traditions are so wrong that you just hit the mute button for a few passages. <laughs> and there's, and you got Paul and Jesus as an ally when you do that. And the tradition shows us that that's what we're always doing. We're always human. We're always in our situation that's full of idolatry and then trying to negotiate with the living and life-giving God's calling out. That dynamic of negotiating, of interpreting, and realizing where we are, that is the challenge. And so what does Paul say? Stay sober, stay awake don't get lured into or getting drunk on the world and it's what it calls normal Mm -hmm. because the world will tell you certain individuals deserve death. Certain boundaries deserve wall. Certain identities don't get rights. All those kinds of things have habits. Um, And Paul, Jesus Both are examples of receiving a tradition and editing it and enhancing the liberating life-giving side. And I think we're at an opportunity today, especially as Christians in the West, as we face an ecological crisis, as we face a growing awareness of systemic injustices and things to go, no, 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 no. We aren't going to let a bunch of—insert a bunch of negative words. I don't want to be judgy right now. We're going to let people— that are passing off Pap's Blue Ribbon Christianity and saying this is the only thing that's real, um, go. Mm-hmm. No, maybe something was really good and it won an award in Geneva when John Calvin was hanging out. <laughs> but there's no reason you gotta keep serving it. And that's not a judgment of him, it's a judgment of you thinking that that the Spirit of God hadn't accomplished anything. Jesus literally said, You're gonna do greater things than me. Anyway, sorry. No, I, I think that's, into- that is like the,
1: well, it's a powerful message it's perfect actually for for us to to kind of cap to capstone the the conversation that we had because i think um there's a lot of i I think i sense a lot when i talk to other christians that are in a similar situation as me, people who are new new to coming back to faith or re-entering faith um there is a, a conservative urge not to mess with things too much, not to tinker with things too much. It's like it's easier to, from the outside and re-entering uh, Christianity, mm-hmm. to dive into Orthodoxy and think that this is the way that it must be done, with the certainty of like a fourteen-year-old who just learned, uh, you know, a new a, a new idea, and they know all about it, and um, and it's foolhardy because if you don't see the way that the belief in God and God, God's self, I'm, re- I'm resisting the urge to masculinize God. You've done very well with that. And I've, I've it's always been a, a problem for, I guess a problem for me, but uh, that uh, God and you know the, the belief in God and God's self change over time, then so should uh, we allow these changes to continue to inform and continue to change our belief today and how we enact that belief and how we present it to the world.
2: Yeah. I, I, I agree with you. I agree
1: with you. Uh, let's see. Uh, do you have any plugs you want to, you want to plug anything, social media or, anything I mean,
2: like you can just Google trip fuller with two Ps. Um, I'm on social things, not on TikTok because my son said I wasn't allowed. <laughs> <laughs> he gets enough grief from his, uh fellow fourteen year olds uh for his dad having uh been on all the other things with hot progressive Christian takes. <laughs> he's like, You can't do TikTok. I was like, Elgin, I thought it would be really cool if I had like a TikTok thing. And I just recorded videos while I was smoking cigars holding a big black Bible, but with like takes they aren't expecting. <laughs> and he's like, no. no. So I'm not on TikTok, but the others. <laughs> and um yeah, the movie Road Deadman is on. Amazon Prime uh, wrote books. You can just type me in on Amazon. Uh, the Homebrew Christianity podcast. There's a lot there. The Oh, the thing when this comes out, because it's coming out right at the beginning of January, right?
1: Uh, I believe so, or maybe the last week of December.
2: Whatever. In the middle of January, I start an online reading group with Adam Clark, who's a student of James Cone, fo- uh, founder, father of uh, black theology in America and for six weeks. Um, and we will be reading James Cone and we have guests, uh, another like two sessions each week. Uh, you can kind of go at your own pace or join live, but, uh, we we, have some of the most famous theologians that are connected to think about liberation and, and racial reconciliation and how that framework is problematic for trying to deal with the historic injustice around race and stuff like, uh, Anyway, James Cone, Black Liberation Theology. If you want to think about the theology, it inspired uh, a lot of the civil rights movement into Black Power Movement, into Black Lives Matter, and what uh, the Black church has to teach um, uh, America now. Like, there's so many reasons to sign up for it. Uh, it's You can just go to jamesconewasright.com. Um, it is, like, donate whatever you want, including zero. So... Those of you that are ministers or something with expense accounts can donate and those that aren't, that like you can give nothing. Um, but the the goal is for us to think about the, the changing shape of religion in the West, particularly in America, uh, through the lens of the person who kind of founded black liberation theology in America. Um, and, you know, his career starts in the 60s and then goes through – Uh, early 2000s when he passed. Uh, And so we'll be reading stuff through it, how he inspired black feminist liberation theology, um, and then how that's impacted and shaped the church. Uh, I'm just really looking forward to it. And it'd be an easy way to connect. And normally the reading groups will have between, you know, like 1,500 and 2,500 people in them. Uh, Half of them will join the Facebook group, the others won't, but you'll also get to meet People all over that think like we have to ask the question of faith again mm. a, in light of kind of like the growing awareness of historic systemic racial injustice. Uh, and James Cone is a great person to wrestle with. Uh, Adam Clark is doing it with me. Uh, is one of the co-chairs for the Black Theology Group in the American Academy of Religion, like the Guild of Professors, Professor Xavier. And then we're going to have like Serene Jones, president of Union Theological Seminary, joining for a session to talk about her own relationship with him. Robert Ellsberg, uh, Andrea White, uh, a great uh, ethicist, um, uh, Kelly Brown Douglas, like one of the OG womanist theologians. So this is like black feminist theology that was a James Cohn student, um, Gary Dorian. Uh, anyway, they, it. it's going to be a lot of fun. Um, if those kinds of questions are interesting, you can join that. But
1: yeah. yeah, definitely check check it out. I was part of one of your um, one of your uh, session series that you did, the one with Tom Ord oh, okay. about about a opening relational theology, and, yeah. and I found it super interesting. And of course, I love Tom, and and so it was uh, it was really fun. And then you know you you kind of read the comments, and you get you get different perspectives on people's uh, you know opinions on things, and and it's it, it's really. Uh, We're using the word edifying a lot tonight. It's very edifying for your fans. (laughs) I I closed all of my episodes, or almost all of them, with a poem. And this week I thought it appropriate to read something from Amanda Gorman. Mm -hmm. Uh, The poem is called Every Day We Are Learning. Every day we are learning how to live with essence, not ease. How to move with haste, never hate. How to leave this pain that is beyond us, behind us just like a skill or any art, we cannot possess hope without practicing it. It is the most fundamental craft we demand of ourselves. Thanks, everybody.
0: Well, a person can work up a mean, mean After a hard day of nothing, much at all The summer's past, it's too late grass There ain't much to break anyway in the fall And sometimes I just stay in the mood To take my place and back for life You're like a picture on the fridge It's never stuck with food at home, now I stay at the house. And everybody wants to be special here. They call your name out loud.